Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Today, of course, we are delighted to have James Pogue with his debut book, Chosen Country, in conversation with David Byers. Um, David Byers' is, well, first feature, No Man's Land, is a documentary about the Malheur National Wildlife Refugee Occupation. It debuted at Tribeca, got very well reviewed, um, and it's a perfect pairing with uh, James Pogue, who was an embedded reporter for the New York Times. He's also written for The New Yorker, uh, for The New Republic, and for Vice. This is his first book. It has gotten incredibly well reviewed. It has been called intimate, troubling, novelistic, urgent, captivating, compelling, potent, unlikely, compulsively readable, incisively written, effective, revealing, courageous, and exceptional. Let's please give them a warm round of applause. I would only add to that list of adjectives a trench hot document of our time. Ooh, there we go. I don't even know where you found all those actors, honestly. I don't remember reading all those. Um, thank you guys for coming. Thanks, Skylight, for having me, David. Uh, we never met until today, but I've, I've heard good things, so hopefully it doesn't disappoint. <laughs> good um, reviews, personal as well. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, so, just quickly, uh, I think what we're going to do is, I usually give like a longer talk, but I usually uh, am doing this alone. So, um, what we're going to do is I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, some news events, and then I think we're going to watch the trailer of his film to set up uh, both the visual imagery of what the refuge is like, because it's a kind of unique chance to have that. Uh, and then I'll talk a little bit and then read quickly, and then ideally we're going to do a Q&A that involves as much of you guys as possible, because at least in my experience, people tend to want to ask questions about this stuff. So um, to kick it off, just real quick, uh, I thought I'd do something because there was just a big news event this week about these guys who got pardoned, uh, the Hammond family. Um, I don't know how many people heard about this, but sort of the key, some, two of the key figures in both what we did our work about and also the sort of broader movement in the West and the ferment in the West were just pardoned by Donald Trump to some fanfare. Um, and if you are people who are in the netherworlds of Twitters and op-ed pieces and think pieces, then you've probably been exposed to some thoughts about this, um, and a lot of those thoughts probably were somewhere along the lines of like, two psychotic right-wing ranchers were just pardoned by an evil president, and it's the end of the world, and um, these horrible people are now about to be let out of prison. Uh, and not to necessarily say that it wasn't a deeply troubling event, um, but I thought I would kind of like set up what the ferment in the West that my book is about uh, through the lens of the Hammonds and just sort of like a little bit complicate that story um, and to also like a little bit give a history of public land law in the West. Um, so really quickly, like these are two ranchers whose land abuts federal land, as most ranches in the West do. Um, they have probably 160 acres, don't hold me on that. Um, and it abides the Malheur Na National Wildlife Refuge. Um, and there are people who, like most rural Westerners, um, came to the West in the sort of wave of settlement that came after the close of the Indian Wars, um, which in Oregon came quite late. Um, and so this is a sort of rolling process, as we know. Um, and it as we opened the frontier, we developed, you know, basically the entire history of the United States is a question of like, as we open the frontier, what do we as a free people do with this mass of collective land that suddenly has been opened up by stealing it from people who once shared it themselves? Um, and for a long time, we didn't have to come up with an answer to that question because we just found more land. Um, and so our answer was basically anything that the English didn't do is what we're cool with. And so what the English did was give it to aristocrats. Um, and so there's a sort of admirable heritage uh, in the United States of having collective land that we gave over to smallholders um, as an explicit plan to not give it to aristocrats and rich people. Um, and that like kind of worked well until the era basically in like 1903 when the Hammonds arrived in Southern Oregon, and 
the entire structure began to collapse within the space of like 25 years. And so basically like suddenly because we had this vast body of land that any fool could go up and like log to their happy extent or like ranch to the degree that you could have thousands of cattle on acres that could really only support like maybe like a hundred per like a hundred thousand acres or something you'd have ten thousand and the land would just disappear it would literally the grass would be all eaten up and towns like Escalante, Utah would just be inundated because the mountains would slide into them and they would like basically shut down um, and so it obviously wasn't a very good collective management system um, the result in the late 1800s was to basically make these forest reserves that like were the first times that we took public land and reserved them explicitly for the public good. We'd never done that before. We'd always anticipated that it would be private forever. Um, or it would be distributed privately. Um, and this set off a sort of slow-moving rebellion that has gone on for the last like 100 years. Um, and so in 1930, and so basically this stuff kept going on. In 1930, um, as the Dust Bowl set in, um, we created something called the Grazing Service, which eventually became the Bureau of Land Management, which manages 35% of US land, um, and is probably the most hated thing um, or of these agencies. Uh, the Forest Reserves became the US Forest Service. Um, and so people like the Hammonds would have come in and they would have been dealing with a new set of agencies that when they had set out to be settlers, they'd never experienced. They were allowed to do whatever the fuck they wanted, excuse me, whatever they wanted um, for a couple generations. Um, and then by the 1970s, all of these communities that had basically been developed on the idea that they'd be able to log, ranch, and mine forever um, were kind of beset by a series of laws passed on the Nixon administration um, that uh, were so kind of like they were the great American environmental movement laws and they were sort of the, this wonderful thing that happened within a very short period of time. But they made the basic underlying premise of most of the rural western communities that you might drive through as, when you're passing through the western deserts uh, they kind of ripped the premise totally out from under them. Um, and so the biggest of these was something called FLIPMA, which turned the BLM, it repealed the Homestead Act, and it turned the BLM into a conservation agency. Um, another of these was uh, the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, um, which made the federal government have to create an environmental impact statement for every decision that they made down to the down to the point where like they have to make environmental impact statements to allow you to run cattle on federal land. And so people like the Hammonds, whose um, basic livelihoods have been dependent on the federal land that they abutted being something that they could access and economically exploit, essentially, um, they saw their livelihood shrink in a very, very short period of time due to laws that in lawmakers from their areas had nothing really to do with. Um, and it caused a lot of economic devastation. Um, and so like, if you look at certain communities like in, in rural Southern Oregon, uh, they would have, for example, um, the, a county would have 90% of its tax receipts come from logging, and then suddenly something would happen where during the spotted owl crisis in the 1990s, um, the federal lands logging industry in, in Southern Oregon shut down more or less overnight due to a federal injunction. And over that course of time, 16,000 people lost their jobs. Um, the tax receipts for almost every county in that area basically disappeared. Public services disappeared because there were no more tax receipts. And people began to feel very anti-government. They hated the feds. They hated their own county governments. Um, and they began to make, naturally, alliances with the kinds of people who also hate the government. Um, and so they began to make alliances with in some cases, neo-Nazis, um, in many cases with militia groups, um, in the case of the Hammonds and, as we'll see, the Bundy family, they began to make alliances amongst themselves and to sort of build a world in which they had a brewing rebellion that nobody really knew too much about. Um, and so this went on up until Let's see how far I want to talk about. I'll talk about this later, the Bundy family's own revolution. Um, but the Hammonds are a good example because nobody knew about this. And yet, they were arrested in 1996 
um, after they refused to allow federal land managers to inspect their ranch, um, and after Dwight Hammond, again, forgive my language, uh, took a federal land manager by the scruff of his neck and told him he was going to rip off his head and shit down his throat. Um, and then he was arrested. And unbeknownst to anyone on the East Coast, a thousand people showed up um, to protest his arrest. Um, and many of them armed. And this was, um, this was exactly 20 years, um, more or less to the month, uh, before Ammon took over the Wildlife Refuge. Um, and so when you look at the Hammonds, um, they're very complicated because they were seen in Harney County as the people who stood up to this process. They were seen as the people who went around Harney County and said, F you to all of the land managers. And F you essentially to the Eastern structure that imposed these new laws upon them. Um, and so they became sort of heroes. Uh, and that's a very complicated thing because if you're an environmentalist or you care about maintaining the prestige and ability of the land management agencies to do their work, you might not want people like that running around your county. Um, but on the other hand, they spoke to something very deeply felt by all these people. And they, felt, they spoke to something that ended up being the anger that Ammon Bundy was to abscess. Um, and so, again, once we get up to where they were arrested, uh, they shouldn't have been setting arson on public land. And they certainly, um, they sort of pretend that they never called in militias. And that's not true. They were deeply linked with people. There were 50 caliber like automatic weapons at their ranch while we were there at the refuge. They were, they're not saints. Um, but they're complicated figures in the sense that when they were arrested over the two arsons that Trump pardoned them for, um, they, these were relatively minor crimes. They burned a couple hundred acres of land that on their grazing rights, you know, they basically have 200,000 acres on their lease. So it wasn't a huge thing and it was seen as retribution. Um, and across the county and across the West, these were seen as figures who were targeted by the feds as a way of punishing all ranchers in the county. Um, and that was something that Evan Bundy was to access. And I think it's a good point, like, or a good moment to like, put on your film a little bit. Sure. Show. Yes. Roll tape. Um, so yeah, I, I made a film about this kind of thing, this, this topic that we're talking about. And we should mention, you know, the, the proximate cause of this occup occupation, um, at least you know optically and uh, you know kind of ideologically, was was the arrest, incarceration, or the resentencing of the Hammonds after they had um, not served their full term and a judge reimposed their full sentence back on them, which were they were subsequently pardoned from a couple days ago. Um, it was it was it was kind of the proximate cause of the occupation, but not really like the underlying ideological like kind of drive of the occupation which you just kind of described perfectly you know in this 150 year history of kind of animosity uh building growing animosity towards the federal government that kind of has culminated in these moments and uh who knows if we've seen the last of it but anyhow i made i made the film about this thing and um like james i was in the refuge um filming with these guys uh not the entire time but um but most of the time so let's Roll that footage. The arson, I feel very comfortable saying this. Don't tweet it, but or whatever, it doesn't matter. The arson was a pretext for the BLM to prosecute them. They had been they had been in conflict with the BLM for a very long time, and the arson was a pretext for federal land managers basically to put them in jail. Um, and I mean, again, I think they probably deserve to go to jail, but I do also think it was a pretext. So, they burn their own land, aren't they clearing brush? What are they doing? Let's go to that in a second, yeah. I
They were easy sites to Yeah, they were easy sites on a larger. Yeah, they, they, they did burn an hour. You were as much better. Yeah. 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 If you talk to a lot of people in Harding County, a lot of people poach. And I'm not saying you should poach, but the idea that somehow they were outliers by poaching is not accurate. Like, that you would be more of an outlier if you did not poach. Um, are they just, were they just generally more anti-government, or what is the norm? We're going to talk about that. <laughs> um, So why don't we just jump into um, actually talking about the Mormon stuff, and then I'll jump into reading. Um, so the way I came to this um, was a sort of long version of this, is uh, that I was living here in LA, um, and I didn't know anything about public lands. I grew up in the East. Um, and so to me, public lands meant that you go to a park, and you pay a guy at the gate, and like you get to go in for a day or something. Like, I didn't understand what public lands meant. Um, and I um, was working on a fire, up, or I was working on a piece about a fire that had burned in Northern California. And I went up there, um, and I started hanging out in bars. And I started hanging out um, And I was like, man, where am I going to sleep tonight? And they were like, oh, just sleep up in the forest. And I was like, well, i got to get a permit. And guys were like, you don't need no permit. And I was like, well, but then I'm going to be illegal. And he was like, it's public land, man, don't you know what that means? And I was like, I literally didn't. And they're like, that, what that means, you can go up there and cut any wood you want, that belongs to you, which is not true. Um, <laughs> and they, like, and you know, you can go up there, you can hunt, shoot, whatever, fish. And I was like, what? So I started living up in this area for like a couple weeks, um, and I was just flabbergasted, because nobody came and took a ticket from me, nobody asked me any questions, and I was like, holy, like, I was broke out of my mind, um, and I, like all of a sudden I could live on permanent vacation in like my in California of all places, um, and I thought this was really beautiful, and I thought it was such a beautiful encapsulation of like what America can be because it's like we as a nation hold in collective trust land that is basically socialized, but it's also like it's also the most. It's also the cradle of the most iconic like symbol of American freedom, like the, a cowboy pushing horns across 640 million acres of land. Like I just thought that was a beautiful combination of like my own left-wing tendencies and my and like a vision of what America can and should be. Um, and so I thought that was very exciting. And when in 2014 the Bundy Ranch popped off, which you guys may have heard of, uh, this was when. Um, Federal agents came to the um, ranch of Clive and Ammon, and they said, "Keep going." Okay. Um, when that popped off, uh, I was actually too broke to go, um, but it was a very. Tr I thought it was a kind of like. What do I mean? I thought I felt it as a rather traumatic feeling because I had suddenly developed this like interest and love for these public lands, and then suddenly they had been embroiled in this whole other thing where it became a war where Cliven, um, and I'll talk about this for a minute, Cliven's the last rancher on public lands in southern Nevada, Nevada. Um, and uh, Cliven felt like the Hammonds, like he had been made a target by the federal government and by environmental groups. Um, and 
simply put, that's accurate. Like, that was actually true. Um, environmental groups had spent a lot of time trying to drive ranchers off of the land in southern Nevada. Um, and they had used laws like the Endangered Species Act and others to take it from being what was once 50 ranching families in 1989 um, down to him. He was the last one, and he had made himself into this messianic figure. Um, and he had developed an ideology that basically said that he was called by God to stand up for the beset ranches of America, and in so doing, to basically effectuate what was the beginning of a revolution that would like end American governance as we knew it. Um, and I followed this from afar. I was like, well, what is going on? Um, and so then I went back to New York, um, and I uh, ended up being called out to go to a mine um, where a couple of um, like wild-bearded, like decaying tooth miners were um, mining gold in a hard rock mine in southern Oregon. This is the sugar pine mine? This is the sugar pine mine. Um, and I went there and like I kind of, I came to them um, as this guy who had like, I used to live in Africa, I worked in gold exploration, so I came to them and I was like, I used to mine gold, like what's up? And they were like, get out of here. Um, <laughs> But I kind of like, I hung around, I hung around, and eventually they let me up into this area that they had closed off. And it was scores of people. I w it was something I was not ready for. It was scores of people um, with, like, again, if you live in the Sahara, like, the marker of war in the Sahara is a belt-loaded weapon on the back of a Toyota Tacoma. And they had these. They had dug foxhole. They had anti-aircraft weapons. Like, it was disturbing. Um, and it felt as though what I had seen sort of bubbling up on public lands had suddenly emerged into a rift in American society. Like they had a five acre logistics base next to a next to an American highway where they were staging things. They had a media center. They had a camp stove. They had, you know, hundreds of cars. And I just thought, oh my God, like this is about to be something. Um, and so when the, um, when the Mallory standoff popped off, I was really excited because I felt as though I was seeing, I had seen a rift and now the rift was emerging into the public light. Um, and so I went there, and a lot of people knew who I was because they had seen my writing about the sugar pine line. So they're sort of like that guy. Um, and so the first person that I met when I arrived was LaVoy Fenicum, who um, was later the person who would end up getting killed. Um, and then I stayed the night there with some militia guys, and then, um, and I'd be, we'll talk about your experience with this, but I was sort of summoned to Ammon Bundy. Um, in this odd moment where you had this stone office, clammy place with no ventilation, and just like it was filled with guns and like this beat up, gross carpet. Um, and he was giving a lecture to these ranchers where he was basically taking his family's messianic belief in themselves as agents of basically destroying the American government um, and their sort of alliance with these right wing and occasionally racist militias. Um, and their experience as ranchers, and they were sort of indoctrinating these people into this revolutionary ideology. Um, and I thought it was really disturbing, but I was also really enraptured by Ammon. And Ammon, as I'm sure you can attest, is one of the most charismatic people I've ever met. Cliven is the same way. Um, and so I was sort of enraptured by him and by his sort of faith-based ability to convey charisma without yelling at people. Um, he, his whole thing was he was always like, leading without leading, so he would never tell anyone to do anything, but he would just ask them to follow. Um, and I was sort of immediately fascinated. Um, and he and I hit it off. We were buddies very quickly. Um, and he asked me to go with him uh, to his home in Idaho. He asked me to smuggle him out of the refuge and go with him to his home in Idaho so we could surprise his one-year-old child um, on his, oh, surprise his kid on his one, his first birthday. Um, and this ended up not happening because of an intervention by people with more sensible heads. Um, but then I was like really in. And so Ammon's bodyguard, um, who was a Mormon kid who had grown up in the hothouse of Mormon right-wing ideology, um, and, and had come to Ammon like without ever having met him, like many people, and sort of like laid down on his knees and was like, I'll give my life for you. Um, and this is a process that happened all the time. And in their this family's orbit, they are just used to it. They just meet people and ask them to swear their lives to them. And so he had done this, and then he had gotten very nervous, and he felt as though something was about to go wrong, and he was having these sort of spiritual visions. 
and he asked me to take him out of the refuge um, to quote, go get some guns. Which I was like, I can't do that, man, I'm sorry. That's not really the thing. Um, but then he was like, all right, so what if we just go down to Salt Lake and we'll like drink some beer, talk to some girls, and go country dancing? I was like, I could do that. That seems fun. Um, and also, I wanted to get out of the refuge. So I was like, great, let's do this. And he was like, if you get arrested, or sorry, if I get arrested, like you can write a great magazine story, and if not, we'll drink some beer. And I was like, okay. This was the bodyguarder. This is the bodyguard. So this is Ammon's personal bodyguard, who was basically contriving an escape, and I didn't know about this. Uh, so then he asked me to uh, drive him, and I was like, absolutely not. So we found these guys who had a jacked up, um, limousine excursion, they had cut it in half, they cut the chassis in half and added an extra door, so it was a six door jacked up bright white limousine excursion, all other seats. Um, and there's three older Mormon guys who would come up to try to persuade Lavoie Finnegan, who would end up dying, to go home. Um, and they had failed in that and then they were heading off. Um, and so we caught a ride with them and over the night they like basically persuaded this young bodyguard to get out and they were like we are Mormons we've been through this we know what fallen a prophet feels like and you're doing that um, and so we drove through the night and we arrived in Salt Lake we hadn't slept we hadn't eaten and Wes the bodyguard was like I think I'd like to go to the first presidency um, which is the Pope of Mormondom, essentially, uh, and asked them to intervene and stop the standoff. And I thought, this is insane. Like, no. Um, and they all said, yeah, let's do it. So we went, basically walked up to Vatican Square on Sunday morning and asked to talk to the Pope. <laughs> and I'm gonna read that scene quickly. <laughs> the rig off the square, the light of morning coming up over the Wasatch range and illuminating the huge white bulk of the temple itself. We decided that it would be Wes, John, and I who actually made the approach, but we all got out and walked to the square. Blonde girls in their Sunday best and stony security men in gray suits were moving purposefully around, getting ready for the church rush. It was cold and quiet. We huddled for a group prayer, and by coincidence, we found ourselves next to a set of carved granite tablets quoting from Mormon scripture and outlining the principles of the faith. Oh man, Wes said, pointing to one. Read this. We all gathered. The laws and constitution of the people, it began. It was a quote from Doctrine and Covenants, the second book revealed to Joseph Smith. Should be maintained for the rights and protection of all flesh according to just and holy principles, that every man may act according to the moral agency given unto him, that every man may be accountable for his own sins in the day of judgment. Dude, how is that a coincidence, he asked, that we stand by that? It's not, Steve said. This is one of the guys we know. West denied this later, but it was hard not to think that some inner faith had been reactivated in him. He seemed filled with wonder and with a huge amount of trepidation at the spiritual and temporal power of this church into, hand, into whose hands he, had, he was giving himself over again. He led the prayer, and his voice cracked on the words, Dear Lord, tears running down his face by the end. Then Todd and Steve went back to the truck, and John, this is another guy we were with, approached the security guard. It had been John's great-great-great-grandfather, Parley Crack, who was the first great apostle of the Mormon faith. And you wouldn't have needed to know this or to have shared the Mormon obsession with ancestors to see him channeling something as his posture straightened. We must have made a strange sight, three grimy men in cowboy boots, looking around for a security man at dawn on a Sunday morning. John located one, an older guy with a flat-top haircut and a gray suit who looked very much like he was still living in the 1950s. In the way he carried himself and gave orders, it would come to seem like he wasn't a simple security guard either, but what kind of role in the Baroque hierarchy of the church he might have played was something that none of us could figure out. We came here from the Monday standoff, John said simply. I can believe that, the security man said, examining us quickly. John looked impressive, tall and lean, and speaking slowly, firmly, and like what was happening was the most normal thing in the world. We, he told him about Wes and said we'd like to communicate with the First Presidency. 
The man had been manipulating his radio earpiece while this was happening, and we were quickly surrounded by more stern, thick men in gray suits. The head man said it was impossible, and strongly suggested that we get out of there. Do you know the name Pratt? John asked. The man nodded. Well, my name is John Pratt, he said. I found it amazing how much of an effect this seemed to have on the security man. I know this is something the church cares a great deal about, he said, and you're going to get us someone to talk to. They were powerless. Wes was there, sitting there shivering, looking at his feet. Do you have any weapons on you, the man asked. Wes felt around. I have this pocket knife I forgot about, he said, taking it out. I'm really sorry. I'm not worried about a pocket knife, son, the man said. A spoken word service and performance the Mormon Tabernacle Choir was about to start, and surreally, they asked if we wanted to sit in. We still hadn't eaten or slept, but Steve and Todd rejoined us and we went. The sermon was arranged on a as a teaching on the danger of charismatic leaders. Wes cried through a lot of it. I was just thinking about how people could get killed. He's, uh, I was thinking about people I knew could get killed, he said. And it's a charismatic leader. And they're talking about it here? I don't know, dude. The security men surrounded us again. We have a meeting set up, he said, but it's going to be a minute. We stood around. One of the guards, a younger guy with a buzz cut, seemed starstruck by all of us. They're doing good work up there in Oregon, he said. John let him talk. You know, we've got a lot of problems down here in Utah, he went on. They began to mention names of people in the PPN and the Oath Keepers, which are psycho militias, and asked if we knew them. I really respect those guys, he said. He asked what Ammon was like. The man with the flat top haircut began to use body language to advertise his displeasure. The younger guy shut up. The church can't control this stuff, Steve told me later. All they can do is control their image. I interjected and said that if I didn't have a cup of coffee, I might have a meltdown. <laughs> and then suddenly caught myself thinking this maybe wouldn't be the best look to be putting on in front of a Mormon security man. Or just, I mean, I can live without it, I said. He winked at me. Get yourself some coffee, son. We loaded up the rig and drove to a Denny's. We were openly tailed, and it seemed like someone from the church must have called the FBI. I found it horribly stressful, watching the hatchback Nissan tailing us through the city, watching the guy who sat down next to us in the booth as he talked on his phone for an hour and took only two bites with a stack of chocolate chip pancakes. Steve had gone into full-on paranoiac mode and was busily picking arguments with random people he thought were FBI agents. <laughs> Keep looking, he yelled to a table where a young stoner hippie-looking couple was with, sitting waiting for eggs. Uh, the guy said, right here, Steve said, you don't have to hide it. Dude, I don't know you, the stoner guy said. <laughs> Steve said, yeah, you don't. The confusing thing was that we were definitely being watched, but we weren't sure by whom, and somehow in our fatigue and pretty fair worry that Wes, or hell, all of us, might be about to get taken down, we'd lost the sense of what was a, no we'd lost sense of what was a normal level of concern and what was adrenaline-fueled paranoia. Soon we got a text from the church saying that our meeting was set, and we loaded up the rig, the little white Nissan dutifully trailing behind. It would have been funny to see if anyone could have known what was going on. A giant limousine truck trundling around downtown Salt Lake, half-heartedly trying to shake a tail, even though we couldn't have picked a more conspicuous vehicle if we tried, while the tiny hatchback followed behind, the driver not bothering at all to try to conceal that he was tailing us. We headed back to the church, where we were rushed up to the second floor of the Joseph Smith Memorial Building. Steve stayed with the truck, driving around Salt Lake and pausing occasionally to send disturbing pictures of white vans assembled outside. Inside, it was quiet and ornate in a vaguely Trump Tower sort of way, full of polished brass, rich woods, thick carpets, and lush wallpaper. We'd all agreed that quotes from the meeting and the names of the participants, though not the gist of what we talked about and the circumstances surrounding it, would be off the record. Part of this was because the men from the church seemed very concerned that West might be in danger from Patriot groups if word of it got out. They were obviously even more concerned that the church be kept as far away from the whole thing as possible, and they came off as unbearably slimy, working hard to seem interested without actually implicating the church at all. Wes seemed totally despondent, exhausted and humiliated at having put himself in the power of men like them. John and Todd were unrelenting and basically made it clear that they wouldn't leave until the church agreed to take some sort of concrete action to reach out to Ammon directly. Finally, they said they'd go to Ammon's state president, a role sort of like that of a bishop in a small Catholic diocese, and have him place a call relaying that he was still welcome in the fold, and making a personal appeal to him on behalf of the church to stand down. Steve was still texting me as he drove around waiting for us to finish. I showed everyone the lineup of white vans he'd sent me, and we worked up a plan in which I'd go out first to smoke a much-needed cigarette while I waited for Steve to pull up outside of the building, 
and Wes, Todd, and John waited for me to throw them a signal to hurry Wes into the car. This came off unbelievably smoothly, with all of us hoisting ourselves into the rig almost before it had stopped moving. By this time, Steve had seemed to have lost touch with reality and was taunting by text an FBI agent he knew and imagining tales coming from every car we passed. John took over driving. But by then, all of us had crossed somewhere into a paranoid alternate reality where it seemed like the arrest would come at any minute. Our nerves were so frayed that if we didn't get somewhere and retrench soon, one of us might crack up. John and Todd conferred for a while, and eventually we decided to head down to their home in Kanaj, where their wives could feed us and we could get a motel room anonymously and sleep some before Wes and I had to go back up to the refuge to get his Jeep and his guns because he was done with what was happening up there. Uh, yeah, so, so I'm going to take over here for a second. Good. Um, <laughs> Um, should we do the video first and then and then kind of get I'm into down. it? I'm down. All right, let's. Uh, we're going to show. It's actually, I think, the first like minute and a half or two minutes or four minutes. I can't remember exactly cool. how long right. of the film. So we're going to watch this real quick, and then I have a bunch of questions for you. So. Taking over those buildings there, and the man was unarmed. Not leaving. This is his pistol. Um, is showing off his pistol that he was totally unarmed when he was killed. Um, at this, this point, is we still have heard from police exactly how uh, this turned violent, uh, but we do know that they have blocked off some of the area, and we do not have word as to what they're going to do. But there is going to be a press conference a little bit later on today. Now, they murdered the innocent man with his hands up like this. Shot him in the chest three times. I know he was unarmed because I'm wearing his fucking pistol. Gunshot, got it. Somebody see him somewhere. is Armageddon now. They might kill us. They probably will kill us here. But we're just a few. There's many more. No fear here, because I know. I know this is the right thing.
So anyhow, <laughs> no bad side available on iTunes and Amazon Prime. Um, that's awesome. what I left out like all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of a little bit of visual re representation of um, you know what it was like there, what it was like, like the kind of the paranoia and almost like the necessary paranoia of being uh, involved in kind of this armed occupation because it did. And I, I want to get your take on this. Like it did feel like. Three quarters, they were very much in earnest about what they were doing, but three quarters, um, it was almost like performance art. And you know, I, I say three quarters of both because both of those things were true very much so all the time. Like it was almost like a form of LARPing. You know, you know, it, times, you know? I think one of the most interesting things that anybody said to me in all of this is that it kind of it brought the politics of it and the religion of it like right together. Where he was. Um, the guy John Pratt, who's like simple rancher kind of guy, um, who lives down in southern Utah and probably has pretty right wing views, but he's very private about them. And he had just come up to try and persuade the boy to go home. And his thing was like, you know, I grew up, I grew up Mormon, and I grew up seeing pageants, and this is a pageant. Um, and he was like, what's really scary about it is like when pageantry becomes real life, like people forget actually what's happening. And so he was very disturbed because he was like, I mean, so much of my experience in writing the book and like why I wanted to write the book was like this experience of like being able to find people I did connect with and also like being able to find people who I thought, like such as Ammon Bundy, who I was really interested in as a figure and I thought that it was important that we connected. And I later learned that he was acting out something that was happening that he did not care about what I thought or anybody else thought and that he was not going to be reached. Um, and that felt really scary at this moment in this country. Like, and it felt really disillusioning. Um, and it felt like working through those issues was a lot of like why I wanted to write this, I guess. Yeah, it was interesting to see this kind of like really, really super zeitgeisty thing to like come to this place in the middle of nowhere in Oregon and just manifest this worldview and like have these roles as like the protector yeah. and like the women were very much so playing this role as well in the kitchen being like we're just here to back up our men right and, you know we're here to cook and clean and stuff like that and it was very much um like play acting at this at the, like the pageantry and i think thing, i mean know? like the other thing is of course like the the degree to which like the media and ammon were able to feed off of each other yeah. was so disturbing because like there was no reason, there's no reason for Ammon to be there if the media's not there, and there's no reason for the media to be there if Ammon's not there. And so, like, you were looking at this, like, sick, twisted version of, like, what our society's become, where, like, everyone is just making noise, and then it becomes this, like, harpy-like cycle, where, like, then everybody who knows nothing about it, again, this is why I wanted to write about this, people who know nothing about this suddenly have these deeply felt opinions, where, like, and I'm, I know you've experienced this, People come up and they start just sobbing at you, like, how can you humanize these monsters who took over our public lands? And it's like, I mean, I kind of agree with you, but like, you're out on a limb too here. Like, if that's how you're processing this, if you can't see the humanity in these people, but that's kind of where it ended up. And it was really, that's why I felt like it had to be done in book length. Like, yeah. Whose unreachability was disturbing to the president or Ammon? Well, I kind of, I would say that. In my mind, Ammon sort of became a smarter and more interesting stand-in for the president, and like a sort of smarter and more interesting stand-in for like all that exists in American life, where you have these psychopathic ideologues who have taken over our country. Um, and how did that unreachability? How did you how did you explore that? How did I draw it? No. Uh, what was disturbing to you about the unreachability? What did that signify? On a certain level, I took it as an ego hit. Yeah, there's that. I mean, I'm sure you did. You, but there's also like when this person has absolute power yeah. and is not listening to anyone, which he very much so did in that situation of you know dozens of guys with lots of guns. That's that's a frightening situation, and especially when this guy feels that he's being called by God, and so therefore everything he does has that um, like divine stamp of approval on it. So that he really does believe that he's not just... Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, he... Yeah, I mean, dollars. no, I, like, prayed with him. He's... So let me, let me just make a point about that really quick. Because one of the most interesting things about Ammon is that similar to so many people on our sort of oligarchical right who fan the flames of, like, 
just such intense anger and like fund these media outlets that like make people like blind with rage. Ammon would say, you know, the federal government has been ruining ranchers' lives for generations, and he would say, you know, like, that there's nothing we can do except just totally get rid of the BLM, and he would say, like, you know, that these agencies are unfixable and our government is unfixable. And, and then when and people, people, like, yeah, yeah, and, people, and yeah. he would say all this stuff, and then when people acted in his name in violent and crazy ways, he'd say, I didn't tell him to do that. Yeah. And it's such, it was such a perfect synecdoche for, like, what the Koch brothers and the Bob Mercers of the world also do. Um, yeah, it's not a it's not an aberration of of his ideology that this ended up violence or became violent. It's the natural conclusion. Um, not only Lavoie's um, demise, but also you know the couple who went to Las Vegas and started killing policemen uh, after being inspired at Clement Bundy's original standoff in Buffalo. So would you say it's more like a libertarian worldview, or is it? Mormon, or, or was it this guy's messianic contract? Is he not part of the Mormon church? Okay, so I'm gonna let me get to that. Um, should we just open it up now? Yeah, why don't we, why don't we just okay, open so it up? So it's officially yeah. open it up. Yeah. You're the first one of the official so, open question page. All right, um, order people. Yeah. There are rules here, all right? Um, no, it's good. You, you, people want to ask questions, right? Yeah. Is that good? Okay. Um, yeah, he's a, so there's a thing in Mormondom that is probably seen a little bit of, um, if you, you know, pay attention to news stories about the faith, but it's real easy to set yourself up as a prophet, um, and it's, it's a very open theology in that regard, in certain ways. Um, it's a moderate if you're theology, right, that's you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is, yeah, it's very, like, um, and so Ammon would, Ammon ha was a very complicated figure because Ammon would declaim any responsibility for anything that happened around him, and he would declaim any leadership of anything that happened around him, um, which is different than his father. His father will receive a prophecy and tell you about it. Um, and so, it's probably worth digressing too. During the Bundy, stand during the Bundy Ranch standoff, um, Clive and Bundy had a vision that his followers were gonna go to the gates of Lake Mead um, and they were gonna seize the guns of the park rangers who manned the gates at, at Lake Mead. And they were gonna bring the guns to his feet and that would be the beginning of the revolution. And so after Cliven, so what happened in 2014 is Cliven basically led, Ammon led, Cliven sat at home. Ammon led 320 or so people, many of them armed, towards a wash where BLM agents were tacked out and full on like gear, looks like you're invading Fallujah. And they, approached them and forced them to stand down and basically disarmed them and won a, a, a naked confrontation with armed federal agents, like just pure Old West stuff. Um, after Cliven had already won that victory, he then sent them to the gates of Lake Mead and then they were kind of like, oh, we're not going to have this. <laughs> yeah. um, and so he got up with the sheriff of Clark County, Nevada, millions of people living in, you know, this law enforcement officer, and he said, I told you people a prophecy and you did not fulfill it and I'm not happy. And he started railing against them. He truly believes he's a Messiah. Ammon wouldn't, Ammon's smarter than that. So Ammon was more like he's reserved. He's, he's, yeah, yeah, he's 43. He's the second, no, he's the third oldest. There's seven boys and seven girls. Yeah, and the father of that father had issues like this. What's that? This family's been... Yeah, it's been going on for a while. Yeah, it's yeah. been going on for a while. What's that? How did that Well, that was one of the confusing things, actually, for if you're observing it. Um, he did not have his personal gun. He had, assuming that it wasn't planted, which I do assume, uh, he had a 9mm given to him by his son-in-law um, in this pocket. And he, so, uh, he got out of the truck after having run, a, um, run a, away from a, a federal stop, um, and he ran towards a roadblock that he almost ran into, um, and he missed an FBI agent by a couple inches and crashed into a snow ditch. And during this whole time, he was screaming, put the bullet in me, you're going to have to kill me, all of this stuff. And unfortunately, at that moment, with his hands up, an FBI agent discharged three rounds, two of which hit the truck. Um, and it's not clear why those were fired. But as he got out of the truck with his hands sort of up, he was under the impression that he was about to be killed. Um, and so he sort of stormed around in the snow screaming somebody to shoot him. 
and then someone emerged from the woods over here, and he reached for his gun in this pocket, and then he was shot three times in the back. If only someone had a visual representation of that somehow. Yeah, it's just a ton of video of it. We, uh, we covered it in No Man's Land as well at the at the end. Uh, spoiler alert, you know. But um, but yeah, it's it's been screwed. This is one of the most like scrutinized videos of all time with tons of good theories about why he moved his hands the way he did. Like people are watching this thing frame by frame. Um, but yeah, essentially, like what happened is like you know this in the and to eat further complicate things, the FBI agent who fired at three shots tried to cover it up and lied about it. Yeah, and so that's just like throwing jet fuel on the fire. Yeah, so if, you're, so if you imagine a group of people who already believe that the federal government is a malefactor and the federal government can get away with anything, all of a sudden you have an FBI agent discharging shots against someone who had his hands up and then lying about it. It's horrible. It's just such an unfortunate circumstance. And the, and the federal government did this. I mean, this is this is probably the worst thing, but every aspect of the federal government's behavior in all of these cases has been more or less along those lines. It's been just absolutely disgraceful. Well, what could um, they done that? It was on. What could the FBI done that? Like, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. It seemed like it was one of those situations where they were goading them to do. You know. There was. There was. Uh, I will say there was. You know that 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 kind of aspect of what they were saying. We don't want any Wacos. We don't want to ruin your edge and stuff like this. Yet they were going to take over federal buildings, um, having and having themselves a grand old standoff, you know, heavily armed. Um, and I think, you know, to their credit, the federal government did not want to have a bloodbath because that's just bad for optics, you know. But they and so they did. the 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 standoff itself went on for forty one days. Weren't they going to try to starve them out, basically? Is that what they were? I don't think there was a plan. Yeah. No, I don't think there was a plan either. So, so let me answer, and then we'll go to these. I'll answer this quickly, I think. Um, the, in, with regard to the shooting, they did as well as they could have. The, the one guy, I mean, the, the FBI agent is an outlier. The Oregon State Police actually, actually think behaved quite well, and they behaved quite well throughout the entire standoff. Yeah. The FBI is a different story. Um, the FBI acted in all cases as something, as an agency that felt like he'd get away with anything. I would have ban the media. Yeah. Ban the media cut off the power. Because yeah. they would they would have got bored and cold and But they also they wanted to win a huge public trial. They wanted to get the bunnies out of there. So they withheld evidence, they put up snipers around the family home, they did all this stuff that was blatantly illegal, um, and that caused the trials to fall apart, which is why the bunnies are now free. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I just wanted to, so I think part of the problem with why people don't understand well, from a liberal perspective, is that the disparity between the way they react to the bunnies and the that they reacted to just an average black person in the street. Or say Standing Rock, which was right. going on while they were Yeah, it's a really good comparison. Yeah. And why do you think that isn't also like... So, yeah, that's a good question. Um, and it's something I think a lot about. Um, I think like there's a certain level in which like you just have to ascribe a certain level of it to just white people are treated differently. And like I think that's just true. So let's just say that top level, that is true. That's our baseline. Yeah. <laughs> that said, there's complicating factors to that. Um, one of the reasons, and people may not like it, but we're entering a phase in American life, like 1968, like 1859, where armed politics are sort of on the table. And these are people who have learned that faster than the left. I'm not saying the left should learn that and go out and buy a bunch of guns, but these are people, why were they treated different? Their first answer would be because we had guns. Yeah that we were treated like we had guns because we brought guns to the table, and so we're safe. You weren't. What's the problem? And that's what, that's they, would, the that's what they would say about standing. And that's an Sorry, argument yeah. they made at trial. They yeah. said, we are not armed takeover guys. We are protesters who incidentally happen to be armed, as is our legal right. And that's what the jury bought. So, you know, I'm not, again, I, I don't fully buy that, and it's certainly not something I hope that people repeat, but that is the complicating factor. Um, and the complicating factor of Ruby Ridge, of Waco, where people were killed for no reason. Sure, but um, I would add, my counter yeah. example would be, you got Black Panthers, you got like, White Underground, all these like other organizations that are left-wing, right. that when they did have guns, were not treated. Right, and, and I agree with that. And so the great, I mean, the great parallel, really, like that both the Black Panthers and Ammon would project vehemently is the Black Panthers walking into the State House in Sacramento. I mean, that's, that, they're, the Bundys are learning from that. At the same time, like, 
a lot of that worked for a while. What didn't work was being an armed social organization in communities, because that's when the government was like, no, 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 no. So if you really want to look at the disparity, it's the fact that these militias have been allowed to prosper in a way that the FBI would never have let people of color be armed and organizing communities in this country. That's the scary thing, because like, that's what's always been repressed, and that's the true hypocrisy and like evil of double standard, I think. Um, Bunch of easy questions, softballs, guys. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to check the time, too. Let's do five minutes more worth of questions. Go. Uh, the image with him and the flag. Yeah. Um, I'm curious what they're, how they see themselves. Are they see themselves as true Americans, and we're not? Yeah. yeah, very much so. They see themselves as patriots. Like, the, the entire movement is called the, the patriot movement. Okay. Yeah. 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 The only reason I thought it was disparity because you said they want to take, you destroy the country. So, yeah. I mean, I would say, like, just in with regard to my reporting, and I feel like we talked about this, there's like a small group of people who, to some degree, like, I think they were able to, I don't, I don't want to implicate you in this, <laughs> I feel as though some of my, what was complicated for me emotionally and also, like, what maybe led me to be in somewhat compromised situations sometimes, was, like, I sort of flattered myself, like, oh, most environmentalists, most liberals, like they're not like tough, cool like me. Like I'm going in here, the bunnies like me. They get that we connect and all this stuff. And in truth, like they didn't really think that. Like they they, they were just playing me. Um, but they will flatter you and say like we are all Americans. But deep down, they don't think that. Like th that's the whole premise. Um, and so another thing, like if you probably heard of the three percenters, which are much in the news of recent, and a lot of three percenter groups were at Charlottesville, and this is a big sort of diffuse militia grouping. The entire premise of the three percenters is that only three percent of patriots during the American Revolution, this isn't true by the way, but only three percent of like white men were brave enough to stand up to the British, and they're the inheritors of that. Yeah. And the direct implication is yeah. that we are not. Right, that, that, that they know better than 97% yeah. of the population. Does. Yeah, because they're willing to engage in violence to get their way, I guess. Um, can you talk a little bit about your film, uh, sure. the narrative arc of it, how you got embedded with them? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually, we have such similar stories I'm realizing right now. Kind of the way, I'm also from back east, I'm from Georgia, and I didn't know what public land was. I thought it was, you know, going to the park, you know. Um, Moved on west to Colorado. Same thing with the camping. You know, almost exactly the same story. Um, but um, I was making documentaries in Colorado, and um, heard I saw the the bunker the bunkerville thing go down, which is a big deal in the West, and uh, like just fascinated me. And a week later, the Bundys were on the road show to kind of continue this whole um, victory that they had at Bunkerville and go to a place called Recapture Canyon in southern Utah which was only like four hours away from where I was living at the time, which is like no distance at all when you're living in the West. You're used to getting your car and driving for like hours and hours, like uh, you did. Um, and um, so I went down there with a friend who I just kind of co-opted into coming with this. He's a sound guy and I'm a camera guy. And we filmed the thing. We made a short film about it. And it felt so much bigger than this little thing. It was literally like a quarter of a mile of dirt that um, the federal government had shut to motorized traffic. Now you can still walk on it, bike on it, uh, drive a freaking herd of cattle on down it if you wanted to, but you just couldn't take anything with wheels and a motor down it. And they were furious, and hundreds of people showed up on ATVs to like drive through this thing, and like ruined like this riparian area, and also these ancient Puebloan artifacts and archaeological sites, and like just priceless things. And so basically. I was like, what What would like drive these people to be so callous? And like, it, San Juan County has, you, you should write a book about San Juan County. Well, so San Juan but, County might be of interest because if you guys followed the Bears Ears controversy where yeah. the Obama established a huge and controversial um, national monument and then Trump just shrunk it, mm -hmm. San Juan County is where that monument is. Yeah. So this, it's sort of the epicenter of this craziness. Yeah, and it goes way back. I mean, that's where uh, the Monkey Ranch Gang by Edward Abbey was based out of. The, the sheriff is based on the sheriff of San Juan County. So, um, so I saw that and I was like, this is much bigger than the, just this piece of dirt right here or about dirt at all, you know? And so I kind of decided to make it into a feature film, in which case, and, and you know, quickly thereafter, and for a year and a half, like, very little happened. You know, he was at Sugar Pine Mine, there's another, like, little standoff at, at White Hope Mine, but those largely well, just fizzled, and the federal government did not show well, up. Oh, because, yeah, because the federal, because the crazy people won. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the federal government just basically did not show up, right. you know, and so, um, but when, 
the Bundys, who I had been you know, following, um, when they went to the Malheur, they it was clear that they, these were the people who were, a, were serious and they were creating a situation where the federal government had to respond in some way because these were public buildings that were being actively used you know, by the public. It's a, it's a bird sanctuary. If, if you are a birder, then it's like top of the bucket list to go to the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. And so... Like the visitor center or something they took over? Yeah, it was, it was the visitor center right there, yeah. which is these beautiful... Yeah, because it was 200,000 acres, so you couldn't really take it. You can't take up the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> the perimeter's a little hard to secure. But, um, so, I, like, when it happened, I just immediately got out there as quickly as I could because this was... You know, when you're working in documentaries, um, <laughs> you're looking for something that has a beginning and a middle and an end. Because rarely does real life get wrapped up that neatly. And this didn't either. This thing's still ongoing. But in the, the case of the refuge, they were going to go there and they were going to eventually not be there. However, this ended up. So I decided to go down there and start filming this thing. And this was very important for me to actually be there. So I flew down. And I, I, I missed James somehow. But um, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how that happened. But. Yeah, I, I didn't talk to, to very many people. No, if I, and if I thought someone was a journalist, I didn't want to talk to them. No, 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 uh, no, no, like, bad, no bad on journalists, but I just didn't, like, I was so paranoid about losing my access the entire time and not being, because they were very paranoid about what the media was saying, the media was saying about them the entire time. Um, so you were lying? No, no, I never, I never said <laughs> that, like, you know, I, I, I told them, you know, where, where I stood politically and ideologically. But I was like, you know, I think there's this is much more interesting than you guys just being paying as psychos. So why don't you tell me why you're here personally? And so that's kind of, that was kind of my end. And they were like, all right, whatever. And then I became friends with uh, Jason Patrick, who is featured heavily in the film, who's kind of one of the more reasonable people there. Um, but anyhow, um, that's that's how, how I kind of got involved in this. And then the narrative arc of the story really kind of follows how this thing kind of started as it did start. At least the proximate cause was the Hammonds. But then it became the, the Hammonds were the, the ranchers who were convicted of arson. Um, but then it kind of became clear that it was about something much larger. And then it became clear that this thing that was much larger, you couldn't really pin it down. You know, it was a general feeling, a, a common refrain you would hear on the refuge is, you know, well, with the way things are going, and I'm like, well, how are things going? And I think a lot of it was like, you know them feeling like they were losing ground of what America means, you know, and so uh, for me, and that, it was also like kind of, kind of like that's, this is like during post-production is when, you know, Trump's was, was like getting caught popularity, got the uh, Republican nomination, so it was just like, you know, this was becoming, this felt like a very zeitgeisty microcosm to use all my big words up in one sentence. <laughs> right. But, um, all right, let's do one more question yeah, and we'll wrap this up because we'll be exactly now. He hasn't asked one yet. Yeah. I was just interested, and I know you guys are super familiar with each other, so you can't pass on this if you want. But I'm interested, are, do, you, do you know how much your timeline's over? Are you covering different acts of the story, or were you there for the same stuff mostly? Or? I left January 21st, yeah. which is three days before the boy was killed. Yeah. And I was. I actually had left too, and I wanted to ask you about this, but we're not going to get to it. But uh, I had left, but then come back. Yeah. Um, and then. Um, I think I left around the 21st, and I got back like the day before LaVoy was killed, and so I was there for all of that, and then I stayed through February 14th, I think, was when the last of the occupiers surrendered, yeah. and that was just, that was a weird time to be around. But, that was very dark. Yeah. Um, okay, one more, the quick... I got, I got all right, all right. <laughs> so, so what is the shape of the West? What's to prevent the West becoming Ooh, this nice south of of reconstruction, what the heck is the West going to do? Uh, okay, so I'll try and do this without giving my Ur theory of the southernization of American whites. Um, <laughs> but, uh, dude, short answer is I don't, I think we, I think that horse is way out of the barn. Yeah. Um, like, that's already happened. Um, dude, what the shape of the West in the near future, and I think it's the shape that's going to govern American life in general, which is, I think, why we're interested in this, is broadly speaking, the West is a nice microcosm of. American division, where you have like sweet little mountain towns filled with friggin' backpackers with their tiny little gear that they put in Patagonia, and these guys who cannot be stopped from driving their friggin' ATVs yeah. with the AK across their their AR across their laps, 
down a freaking closed canyon. Like, that's not going away. Um, and we're going to live in a society where those divisions essentially govern us for the next foreseeable future. Um, and I, I wish I had a better answer for that, but to be honest, like, that was kind of why I wrote the book, because I wanted to figure out, like, to at least sort through my head, like, what it's going to be like to live in that society. Um, and if anybody has an answer, by all means. Um, yeah, we're all ears. Uh, seriously, yeah. that, that's the question. Yeah. Um, I think that's the question of the polarized United States. Yeah, you know. So. Yeah. Um, so in that, with that note of hope, um, <laughs> um, if anybody wants to buy a book, I guess you should do that. I would love it if you did. And, You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.